The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of Data Gurus. I am happy to have my guest today join me from across the ocean. Ray Pointner is here, and he is the founder of New MR. Welcome, Ray. Time to welcome this week's Data Guru. Hi there. How are you today? Really good, thanks. You know, I'm looking at the screen and I love all the books you have behind you. It's rare that you see that anymore. Yeah, I still read a lot of paper books. I most, mostly it's digital, but I probably get through two or three paper versions a month. There's something comforting about that. So, right, tell our listeners a little bit of your background. I, I know that you have been doing so many interesting things for our industry and tackling a lot of topics, but it'd be great just to share a little bit of your background with our listeners. Well, I, I guess my main advantage is I've been in the industry 40 years now. So I've seen a lot of changes and I've been lucky enough to work at the cutting edge. So in 1978, I was working with the first Apple II computers coming into the UK, seeing how we could use them in market research. And I've pretty much always been at that edge of the business. Now, of course, what the edge is has changed. Right. And I've spent time with some of the big names like the Millwood Browns, more recently the Vision Criticals. Probably most of the last 10 years, it's been around consulting, writing, teaching, and training. And New MR is a really a useful vehicle to enable me to do all four of those. I love that. And I love the name New MR. How do you position yourself? How does New MR position itself in the industry? The most important thing is we like to look at the new to see how it adds to the old. So we're not about throwing away the old stuff. We focus quite a lot on good methods, good thinking. We don't do anything that we think somebody else is doing. So if somebody is doing a, a great job, then that's fantastic. We don't try to compete with that. We look for the spaces and we probably pride ourselves most on finding new names. So for example, the first ever global platform that Lenny Murphy spoke on was a new MR platform. Wow, that's so exciting. So he's one of our hits and Annie Pettit would be another, John Pulston, Betty Adamu. And it's, you know, it's great when you can help people who are really good just get started and get a bit, a bit more presence. That's fantastic. And I know the hot topic right now, I, I have gotten so many emails, notifications, content about GDPR. What's your perspective on what's going on as companies prepare for it? My understanding is that anybody who is trying to do the right thing will not get into trouble. It won't be that on day one, they will try to find somebody. And maybe they'll go after a Google or a Facebook, but for other reasons. So I think that the first thing is, if people are trying, they shouldn't worry. One of the things I think is really funny at the moment, 
are the number of spam emails I get about how are you GDPR compliant from people who are clearly not. <laughs> and it's, it is going to be an interesting challenge. We had some very hot news this week. Verve, not the market research Verve, but the ad tech company, right. just announced they're closing all of their offices in Europe. They're pulling out of Europe entirely because they do not believe that what they do at the moment as a mobile ad tech company can be made legal. Interesting. So are they relocating somewhere else outside of the area? They're bigger in the States over here anyway. And gotcha. they're just going to make sure that to all intents and purposes, they are not going to be operating in Europe. And Facebook, what I think is a very sensible announcement, but they're being heavily criticized for it. So if you are in Australia or Canada or the United States, Facebook USA will host and process your data. Interesting. At the moment, Facebook Island is because that helps them do the, I nearly said something naughty, that helps <laughs> them do the efficient non-paying of tax. Got it. <laughs> and, and so they're bringing that out of the UK, but they're out of Ireland. But they're only bringing out of Europe the data for the people who are not in Europe. So actually it was a strange anomaly and it was a tax-based anomaly that those were being dealt with. So we're going to see some changes. People are going to tidy things up. Basically, if you are open, transparent, keep good records, and you work on a consent basis, there isn't going to be a problem. Okay. It's really when people are doing things they haven't really explained to people. So I teach at the university here, and I talk about informed consent. And I say, now, consent is really easy informed consent that's much harder because you have to know the other person understands what they're consenting to it's so true because i think that people just automatically i think i think there's going to be heightened sensitivity to it now but i know i'm guilty of it myself where i'll just click something just to get into the application that i want and so not necessarily really understanding what I'm agreeing to. Now, obviously, I'm much more sensitized to that. And I'm looking at my mobile apps and trying to understand, you know, what have I given consent to? Do you think that some of this is going to spread into the US, some of these policies? Not necessarily. There is a fairly big fundamental difference between the European model, which is shared by many other countries, Canada, Australia, Argentina, and if you were to go back 100 years in the early days of banking, your bank records, who owns them, you or your bank, and countries and companies could have gone either way. They could have, you own your records, or you could say, well, if you want to bank with me, I own your records. And fundamentally, what has happened in America is, in the USA, is that the company owns the records of the people doing business with. And in Europe, fundamentally, they do not. Interesting. So that is quite a, a deep division. That's right. And on top of that, of course, we have the experience of Germany only a few years ago, where a lot of the problems were caused by record keepers mm. and the use that was put to those records. So there is a sensitivity in Europe, there isn't elsewhere. And if we look at what's going on in China, then we can see a third picture where that information is used really heavily by the state. 
they've got great facial recognition. So you can now, if you're a Chinese citizen, get a jaywalking ticket because the street camera has used facial recognition to recognize you. It's looked to see where you've crossed the road, decided it was illegal and has billed you. Wow. And that is a, a very different direction from North America and a very different direction from Europe. Interesting. Do you think that the whole China example is very scary? It's so big brotherish. It's concerning. I know. But I, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at this as a wait and see. Let's see if this is really going to make a difference and people are really going to be um, policed and, and watched carefully. Do you think that this is going to go away in, in Europe or is it something that's going to be health said people are going to abide by it and, and continue it's going to keep continuing there's a device in engineering called a ratchet and, and it turns and it can only turn one way it goes click when you turn it and then it hits the metal flanges and won't turn back and then click and what we're seeing is a ratchet in terms of individual data privacy some of these rights proceeding through the system at quite a deep level. And every time there is a new scandal or there is a new problem, then the ratchet turns. Or that there has been a cleverly argued case in a court that says this applies here. So one of the interesting implications in Europe is this right to be forgotten. And the mm -hmm. right to be forgotten is going to have a lot of implications for things like uh, cryptocurrencies right. and blockchain and so on. And that was never legislated as a digital right. It came out of some more fundamental rights and was then looked at by lawmakers and judges and evolved. So we can see these sorts of things happening very much in the way that in the USA, the Supreme Court makes some of the most important laws, not the politicians. Right. Because they will take the documents and they will interpret them in a tighter way or a slightly different way. And this changes the situation. So that is happening in Europe. Can places like Canada and so on are very happy to do it. And probably if we think about it from a, a sovereignty versus commercial point of view, all of the big companies are either Chinese or from the USA. Right. So for somebody like in Australia or for Europe to say, we want to protect citizens from an American company, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of political sense as well as everything else. So in the US, where it may well be the case, do we want to protect citizens and damage a US company? the argument may well be different. Right, right. Well, it, it fundamentally, I also think that, you know, I was talking to other folks and it just seems like the argument of ethics and morality and doing the right thing tends to really play out in the European countries. Uh, it, it's a higher ground conversation, it feels like, whereas in the US, and I'm making sweeping generalizations, it feels more about commercial gain versus really thinking about the rights of consumers. I think at the commercial level, but that probably pays back to, in the US, there is more a belief that citizens can make a valid decision themselves. Fair. And in Europe, you would expect, no, we can't make, let citizens make these decisions. We need to help them make those decisions. So I think that is part of it, that the role of laws, as opposed to ethics or Christian ethics, right. is different. So the US would probably claim stronger ethics outside of the business sector mm -hmm. but the belief in free cap in free enterprise and laissez-faire capitalism right is much stronger in the u.s everybody should have the chance, chance to make it to the top right and if you go to say sweden or something then by the time you're earning five times 
the people at the bottom, people are starting to be suspicious of you. Right. And that you're not part of the collective society. Interesting. So I, th I think there are going to be some differences. And I think perhaps coming back to, to one of the hats you wear in terms of SampleCon, this is probably really good news for panel companies because panel companies have a much better set of documentation and processes than people who are using ad hoc methods of recruiting or slightly strange ways of embedding themselves in games and these sorts of things. So I think a lot of the river sampling people may find life a lot harder right under gdpr i think that some companies who are using excellent survey products from companies like survey gizmo and qualtrics to do samples with their own customers will suddenly find that they don't have the right processes and procedures in place but the panel companies will have yep so this could be quite a positive thing for panel companies that's, that's a great perspective. I, th I think right now everybody is so focused on being compliant that they haven't necessarily thought about the benefit versus the fear of it all. And, and it makes sense in terms of, you know, we have the privacy policies. We do inform panelists of surveys what experiences they're going to get into. It almost feels like good, good housekeeping. Many of the panel companies have to go through, but not insurmountable. Yes. So let's switch gears. I, I know that you've seen it in the industry. There's always buzzwords. There's always the next kind of big thing. And I know 10 years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit less, we were talking about mobile and social and different things. And now we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, and a real concern about our industry and where does it end up? as it relates to some of these major forces. What's your perspective on how our industry survives and thrives? Not just, just survives, but actually thrives. And we kind of gain and apply our skills in a different way. What's your perspective on that? I think the main thing is that we need to be inclusive. We need to move forward with our definitions of what is market research. So SMR, for example, have a fairly broad definition, including a lot of analytics. Mm -hmm. And 40% of all the market research spend in the world at the moment is actually from new types of market research, which are not surveys. They're not focus groups. They are data analytics. They are secondary processing. So we need to make sure if our industry is to grow and develop, that a large chunk of that business sees itself as being involved in market research. So we certainly need to keep pushing the boundaries in the way that we did with customer satisfaction. So customer satisfaction didn't necessarily have to end up in the market research industry. It could have been its own separate area. And for a while, companies like Marriott's in the States were sort of semi-detached really right. from mainstream market research. They were doing enormous amounts of customer satisfaction and there are companies out there who are doing types of customer satisfaction who are not in the industry but we did a pretty good job of bringing that in we did a really bad job of bringing usability testing because mm. usability could have been inside the market research domain and of course there are people who are, who doing, are, market it. Who are doing it but the vast majority of usability work is not done by people who would say oh yeah i would call myself a market researcher i would attend the trade bodies i'd be aware of their codes of ethics so one of our tasks is to make sure that enough of this new stuff comes in and it's integrated with the things we already do because there are a lot of things we do that other people can't adding that final explanation this realization of what is causing it and so we need to make sure that we we do that and we're open-minded so that we can see the industry changing 
it will change the character of the industry. We mm -hmm. will have a lot more people who studied STEM subjects right. and who struggle with storytelling even more than market research <laughs> struggle with storytelling. There's a lot of training opportunities out there in that area. I agree. I think there's a strong partnership with some of the folks that you just talked about, data scientists, where their focus is really on the data and refining it. But we are in a great spot as researchers to be able to create, understand business objectives, understand the data, and be able to put it together. And I have seen some of that happen. And it's just hopefully it's a matter of time that we embrace more of it. Absolutely. Now, if people want to see an absolute paradigm of, of that future, they should Google TED videos, Ben Wellington. Okay. And he takes a whole set of data from New York. And one of the things he looks at are fire hydrant fines. And he does a visual map that shows where you get a fine for parking next to a fire hydrant. And he shows that in, in the Upper East Side, you're pretty much bound to get a fine wherever you park. But then he shows these two hydrants in the Lower East Side that are bringing in over between them over $50,000 a year and he can't explain that from the data. So what he did was he went and visited these two hydrants and he could see why they were over there. There was a parking spot that had been painted and there was a curb extension. This was what the problem was. He sent the city a letter two weeks later the problem had been fixed. Now what he doesn't say and maybe he doesn't know is what he did was take quantitative big data and solve it with qualitative there is nothing more than qualitative nothing more qualitative than you ever get than going and having a look at the problem right and realizing what it is and that sums up what we can add and i think we're going to see a massive growth actually in qualitative research people who can interpret ethnography so we're seeing more and more ethnographic information being collected now we need a growth in the number of people that can do something with mm -hmm. it along with the growth in the use of AI in interpreting, organizing, structuring it. Yeah, it's, when you think about it, it's quite exciting. That, that example was amazing just to listen to. And I, and I do, we even see it on the panel side that there is an uptick in terms of people wanting to do more communities, more in-depth interviews, and combining the qual-quant solutions to kind of put a picture or a face to the problem as well. Yeah, I saw a fantastic presentation uh, just a few weeks ago in Sydney talking about their telco, their Telstra. They've got seven years of continuous data from members of their community looking at NPS. So over time, 80% of people were a detractor at some point in their relationship with Telstra. So we shouldn't think about detractors as being separate people. Right. It's all of us, some of the time. <laughs> and then at certain points, they contact them and they talk to them in a qualitative way to find out why they changed their view, why had it gone up, why had it gone down, marrying together this really hard-edged user data from the phone records, from the NPS score, and then the insight was a sort of a great model for going forward. That sounds really good. And I know that, Ray, you are still continuing to kind of improve the practice of questionnaire design and questionnaire writing. And I think just recently you wrote some, you kind of reframed the question about gender of how we ask gender and, and age, I believe. That's, those are the two questions. Yes. Well, particularly gender. I mean, it's, it's really interesting how much it moves and changes over time. And we now, and also why 
we ask it a particular way. So this, the most standard way now of asking it is, are you male, female, um, other, e.g. transgender, and possibly I don't see myself in those terms. Almost nobody ticks the bottom two boxes. We're not doing asking those questions in that way because we want to break the data by those and send targeted emails. Right. We're doing that out of respect. And funnily enough, the very first time I came across this issue was when I was doing some face-to-face -face interviewing back in the early 80s. And we had divorced, uh, we had grouped together on the answer, divorced, separated, widowed. Hmm. And people said to us, widowed's not the same as divorce. I didn't get any choice. <laughs> and of course, we had grouped them together because to us, it's the same. It's a single person right. used to be in a relationship, has probably these property outcomes, may have these children. We're going to treat them the same way, but they objected to being asked as if they were one group. That's a great example. That's a great example. And so are you, are you seeing people embrace some of these changes in, in the questionnaire writing? Well, it's funny. We are seeing some people get better and better at asking the questions and really thinking about what's going on and being innovative. I'm thinking about Insights Consulting and mm -hmm. the company that was formerly known as Brain Juicer mm -hmm. and the System One Group and so on. However, on the flip side, so many of the companies are coming out with fantastic new tech Right. are asking really awful questions like, why did you choose that? Mm -hmm. How many times will you do this in the future? Questions that we know don't work terribly well because they're great at tech, but they don't know anything about the last 30 years of development. In right. How should you ask questions? How should you interpret answers? Interesting. And are you seeing, have you heard about, I know many of the panel companies continue to advocate for respondent experience and say, you know, and, and starting to push back a little bit and saying this 35 minute questionnaire is not appropriate. Are you seeing acceptance by researchers to say, I need to change the game in terms of how I ask the length of the questionnaire and respecting the respondent experience? Most researchers I speak to are aware they should change. Mm -hmm. the, the fundamental issue is probably the buyers and commissioners of research and then the lack of spine <laughs> amongst the researchers <laughs> who, who may or may not say, I judge that's a really bad thing. Right. So I've kind of got around that a bit these days in that when I'm working with younger researchers, one of the things I try to do is to, has your client done the survey on their mobile phone and said, yes, it's okay. So rather than tell the client the survey's too long, just get them to do it themselves right. on their mobile phone. And then we'll realize how horrendous this yeah. is. And then think about, and this is not so much about panel companies really, but so much research these days is done with customers and Scott Miller at uh, Vision Critical has really been championing this. This is no way to treat your customers. Right. You know, it's one thing if it's a random sample and nobody knows who you are. But if these are your customers and you're sending them horrible, horrible, boring surveys, you're just degrading the relationship with your own customers. Unnecessarily and counterproductive. That's very true. I think there's definitely more sensitivity, at least I've seen, when folks write surveys for their customers versus when they're going out blind yes. uh, to a pool of people, <laughs> which makes, I understand that psychology. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully it will then spread more widely. Yes. One last question for you, Ray, and that is, you have such amazing experience and perspective. What advice do you give young people who are entering the market within the research industry? What is some tips or not tips, but what advice would you give them as they're starting out? 
There is now a, a moderately new name to what I've been saying for many years, which is T-shaped employee. So you need a good base so that you can have a conversation about qual and quant and survey design and behavioral economic. And then you want to be really good at something. Interesting. And it almost doesn't matter what that something is, provided you find it interesting. And it probably shouldn't be questionnaire printing or something like that. <laughs> Beyond that, it can be ethnography. It can be data science. It can be international research. It can be business research, B2B. Asking really good behavioral questions could be your, your speciality, but you need to have something where other people in your organization that say, let's ask Jane or let's ask Joe, they're the person who knows about that. That's going to, to develop it. And then you should learn a new speciality every two or three years. That's great advice. Anything else, Ray, that you want to share with the listeners in terms of what's upcoming for you? Um, I think the thing that I would say is that anything to do with video, we're going to see more and more and more video. We're going to, that's where the AI and the categorizing and the auto-processing are going to come in. It will take longer than everybody is saying because a lot of people are saying they've got it. Right. And actually, it's probably going to be five, eight years before it's routine. The way these things happen is we're all waiting for it, waiting for it. Then one day we realize we've been using it for the last two years. That's so true. <laughs> so we're going to see a lot along that. And I'm quite excited at the moment with the growth of the use of semiotics. So we had a, a webinar yesterday with quantitative semiotics. How can we use more images? How can we understand what people say at scale? So if we've got 300,000 NPS mm -hmm. survey results and we've got open ends for why did you give that number, then really turning that round in a way that doesn't require sampling, that combines, and um, Stephen Phillips at Zappy Store talks about this a lot, augmented intelligence. So you put a good person together with a good machine and you get some great output. That's exciting. We're going to see a lot more of that. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate Pleasure. it. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? I'm possibly, after Lenny Murphy, the easiest person to Google in social. So Twitter, just Google me and you'll find me. Fantastic. Thanks, Ray. Okay, bye for now. Great bye. talking to you. Come back soon. Thanks. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended. But your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.